If at any point throughout the broadcast you hear a topic you would like to discuss or feel you have a tidbit that you could contribute, please don't hesitate to call in. I would absolutely love it. It would make my day. How about you, Brandon? Would it make your day? I don't really care. Great! The number to call is 718-928-9RFB. Again, that's 718-928-9732. And you know what? Even if you just want to call in and say hello, or better yet, call in and say, You suck! Go ahead. It would be just as delightful. Now on with the show. On with the show and a poke a bow and here we go. All right, you're listening to the next best thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. As you just heard, the phone number is 718-928-9RFB. That's 718-928-9732. You can also tweet at us. We are live on Twitter, the land of the bitter. At Next Best Radio, please, by all means, like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash nbtradio. Also, if you're feeling very you know, in the writing mood, send us an email. Nextbestradio at gmail.com. All right, now, here we are into the main topic for this evening. The show, the episode tonight is called Gun Story. Why? Well, because there's a gun story. Um, I, as I've said on multiple, I mean, I've said many different weeks, that I am very much passionate about the gun epidemic that we have in America. I don't make any secret about how I feel about guns. I hate them. I think it's a huge problem. I know it's a huge problem. I think it's an even bigger problem that we have so many people who are in a state of denial about it and who we take seriously. But that's neither here nor there. I used to write for a website um, that was part of a larger organization, but our job was basically to spread awareness about everyday occurrences of gun violence. Because that's the thing that people don't seem to really wrap their heads around. It's, you know, we hear about gun violence primarily when there's a mass shooting, which sadly are becoming more and more common. But what we don't hear about are the 11,000 common gun murders a year, the 19,000 suicides committed with guns, and the over 4,000 people who die from accidental shootings. Now, that number is between 2005 and 2010, which means during 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, those years, the average number of people who died by accidental shootings was a little over 4,000. As we now know, that was seven years ago. I'm guessing that was taken around the last census. I guarantee you that number is higher, is significantly higher now. More than 4,000 people die by accidental shootings a year. If you go to Google News and just type in accidental shooting right here, right now, you see man killed in accidental shooting in uh, Rashhag range is identified. That was in uh, some, I believe, Tennessee. Carthage child dies from accidental shooting at home. That went up three hours ago. A 10-year-old is dead after a shooting in Carthage, police say, was a tragic accident. Juvenile in stable condition after accidental shooting in Shreveport. That was 17 hours ago. 
man died in Covington accidental shooting identified. That was January 11th. And on January 12th, Cowchilla child killed in shooting involving young sibling. Police say accidental. These are within the past few days. I guarantee you the number of accidental shootings has gone up significantly. And it's funny because when I was writing for that website, very often we had a we had a a section where people could actually send us questions. And a question I got more than any other was, why do I care so much? Who do I know who's been shot and killed? Do I have a family member? Do, do, have, I, have I been shot? And the truth is, no, I've never been shot. And I'm not sure that I have an immediate family member who has. I know, I do know people who have been shot. Um, But no, I can't think of a close relative who's been shot. Um, I, I have to say, though, I don't... I think it's a little sad and, you know, a bit, I don't know, cynical to think that I would have, surely, if I care this much, it's because my mother, father, brother, sister was murdered with a gun or because I got shot the other day. I mean, I don't, I mean, I've never had cancer. That doesn't mean I don't have an immense amount of empathy for someone who is going through that struggle. However, I was listening to NPR a few nights ago and I heard a story that struck a chord with me like I couldn't, I can't even describe to you. And unfortunately, the audio I was able to pull of it is not great, and it starts a little bit mid-sentence. So let me give you a little background. This guy is telling this story, and what he's told so far is that he had recently moved to Chicago, and he was having all sorts of couldn't sleep, anxiety. And so he took the advice of a friend and went to see a therapist. And he was talking to the therapist, listing some of the things that could have been wrong with him, some things he had, you know, come across on WebMD, and I'll let him take it from there. And he was pretty impressed by the depths of my neurosis. <laughs> Understand this is before WebMD when everyone could do it. But... <laughs> He assured me that despite the fact that I had been to Europe and eaten several steaks, that I wasn't suffering from mad cow. I, I had anxiety. And he asked me if there was anything that had happened recently that had been causing stress. And I had to think about the question for a little while. I said, you know, I haven't been adjusting well to my move to Chicago. And he nodded his head. He said, you know, a transition like that into a new city can cause a lot of stress. I said, my father's dying of cancer and I can't convince him to take better care of himself. He nodded again. This is obviously a story he's heard a lot of times before. And then I said, you know, my daughter almost died last year from febrile seizures, and I'm pretty much terrified to be left alone with her. Now, this raised his eyebrows. He wrote me a prescription for Xanax and gave me the name of a therapist he wanted me to see right away to delve into this further. Now, I don't know what prompted me to say what I said, but as he handed me the prescription, I just blurted it out. I said, you know, oh, one more thing. When I was 14 years old, um, I shot my best friend in the face accidentally, and I watched him die. Henry was one of seven people to die that day in New York City, 1988. At 14, he wasn't even the youngest. A 12-year-old kid from Queens had that dubious distinction. But... His was the death that I saw with my own eyes, the one that I 
was responsible for with my own hands and the one that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. Now, home back then was a two-bedroom co-op in the Kensington section of Brooklyn, for those who know Brooklyn pretty well. It was a big source of pride for my mom, who had raised my three older sisters and I almost single-handedly since splitting from my dad when I was four years old. This was the first place that she owned after what seemed like an annual ritual of moving. Now, for those who don't know, New York was really violent and dangerous back then. Detroit, New Orleans, and Gary, Indiana rolled into one dangerous. You know, 2,000 murders a year, violent. But I never let the violence swirling around in the world outside ever impact me. I was actually an honor roll student all the way. And when Henry and I met in the seventh grade, we got along immediately. The physical contrast couldn't have been more extreme. He was unusually muscular and well-built for a 12-year-old. And I was just as oddly tall and lanky for a kid the same age. But that's pretty much where our differences ended. We both were into all of the same things. We shared all of the same fears. We walked together every day after school to the Carroll Street subway station in South Brooklyn. And we both hated the older boys from John Jay High School nearby who'd show up every Halloween and rain rotten eggs, diesel batteries, and of course, water balloons filled with nair on our heads, which gave you a nice surprise when you got home and tried to clean up. He was my first and best friend. Now, on the afternoon of April 14th, 1988, Henry and Chris, another friend of mine, came by my apartment like they had many times before. They dropped their book bags and plopped down on my bed. My mother was a captain in the Army Reserves at this time. We had three guns in the house. Um, the 38 caliber revolver was my favorite, not just because it was the one we kept loaded. Also, it was just the most interesting. It looked like a gun from the movies. And it was the one I always showed to my friends, even though my mom never knew about it. And this day was no different. I started off by emptying the gun, made sure all the bullets were out. Then I demonstrated my index finger spin, the cowboy move that I've been working on. Then I took a single bullet. I pretended to insert it into the cylinder and pointed the gun at my friends. I can actually remember smiling as I pulled the trigger, ready to shout gotcha when I made them jump. But instead of the dull click of a hammer followed by laughter, there was a muzzle flash, an explosion, and shock. Both of my friends, Chris and Henry, had turned their backs to me and I remember being over overcome with confusion. How did the bullet get into the chamber? Chris turned and looked at me and my heart started racing and we both looked over at Henry. I guess we were waiting for him to turn around, say, oh, shit, and then tell me how much trouble I was going to get into when my mother got home. Now, whenever we're faced with something horrific, I think it's human instinct to want to run. And mentally, that's what I did. I just like fled into my own psyche. Like I went back years to being with my father, Coney Island on the pier trying to catch a bluefish with my piece of rod and reel. And the next thing you know, I was back there in the hallway and it was full of people. My mom was there now sobbing. The paramedics were there. Of course, the cops were there and Chris and I were there. When one of the paramedics came out of the apartment, I remember begging him, please tell me he's okay. Please tell me he's okay. And even though I knew what he was gonna say, I just like wasn't prepared for the words. He just said, he's gone. That night in the police station, I had to recount in detail everything that had happened for the police. I didn't want to, I wanted to crawl under that table and hide, but I did, slowly, methodically, 
Choking back tears is when I looked down and realized that my sweatshirt was covered in blood. My dad was there. I almost never saw him at that time, but he was there with my mom with the same forlorn look on his face. The wake came about a week later, and I didn't think Henry's family would have any interest in me attending, but my mom insisted we go. So when we got to the funeral home, there was a huge crowd gathered around the coffin, and I made my way over to Henry. And he looked really nice. They had him in a really nice blue suit. But I remember the coffin making him look so small. And I just stood there and stared at him while everyone else around me wailed. That's when I suddenly heard this woman's voice. She said, I just want to see him. And I remember it made me jump because I didn't know whether she was talking about Henry lying there in the coffin or me, his killer, standing over him, crying onto his jacket. I know every eye on the funeral home was on me, and all I could do was just close my eyes and wish that I was someplace else. Now, miraculously, Henry's family did not want to press charges. Um, They embraced me and offered their forgiveness. And when the Brooklyn DA hit me with a long list of charges, ranging from manslaughter to assault with a deadly weapon, I think it was 17 charges total, they were the ones who stood up and said they didn't want to destroy two young lives instead of one. And they're the reason that instead of going to jail, I got um, one year of counseling. That was my sentence. Um, I remember thanking them profusely outside the courthouse that day for giving me a second chance when I didn't think I deserved one. Now, in the years that followed, I thought it was odd that no one, none of my friends, none of my family ever said a single word about Henry. Everyone went about their lives as though he had never existed. The entire incident was wiped from my record when I was 16, so it hadn't even existed in a legal sense. And if I never mentioned it again, it would never come up. But I thought about it, the shooting and Henry almost every day. And oddly enough, it's what drove me for a number of years. Ask any friend of mine in college, I was the most anal retentive dude they ever met. I wouldn't touch alcohol, I wouldn't smoke a cigarette. Don't get me wrong, I made up for it years later. But I just felt like I had to do him proud and I had to be perfect. And for a long period of time, I thought I was doing it. Um, Successful career, Um, I was a faithful husband and a doting father on my daughter, who I watched grow from an infant into a toddler. But then her sickness at 18 months pretty much derailed all of it. When we got to the hospital, my daughter's body was convulsing. And all of a sudden, all of these emotions and feelings I hadn't felt since I was 14 came rushing back. The feeling of panic, the feeling of helplessness. And that's when it dawned on me. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is going to be my sentence that I'm going to have to see what it's like to lose a child. And, you know, miraculously, she did survive. And the doctor... The medical staff assured me that some children just have a really low tolerance for fever and it's something that she would probably grow out of, almost certainly grow out of. But the damage was done. And when we got back home, everything was just completely different. I was just terrified to be left alone with her. I felt like this marked man and that the second it was just me and her, something was going to go wrong. And it didn't help that after she got sick, I suddenly started having this recurring dream about Henry. And... It was always the same dream. In the dream, I'd be asleep. I'd wake up, sit up in my bed, and he'd be sitting there on the edge of my bed staring at me with the bullet hole still in his chin, 
about the size of a nickel. I start talking to him. I'd say, hey, how are you doing? And his blank face, face would just show no expression. And after a while, I'd start get, getting desperate and pleading with him. I'd start asking him if he knew how sorry I was. I'd ask him if he knew that it was an accident. I'd ask him if he knew how much I missed him. Then finally, he would open his mouth and try to respond. But just like on that day, the bullet stopped him from speaking and he just gasped for air. I break down into tears and I wake up crying in bed. And this dream repeated itself for years. Henry always there staring at me, the same, and me just getting older and older and older. 14, 18, 21, 25, 30, and starting to gray. It took me passing out on the L that day to realize it, but I knew that I needed help. Now, Henry is dead and I killed him. No one can absolve you of your sins if you don't believe it in your heart. And I honestly don't believe there's any amount of good I can do in my life that'll absolve me of his death. But my trying to live a life for two people, one of whom I can never bring back, was just a recipe for a disaster that was gonna doom me and everyone who cared about me. It took this chain of events that started with me passing out in public and ended with me having that first tentative conversation with my mother about the day to realize it. And it was an interesting conversation, if uncomfortable. I found out that my mom, of course, had been dealing with a lot of the same feelings of guilt, but more illuminating, she'd been battling anxiety since the day it happened. I think we found some small amount of comfort in learning that little thing about each other. You know, my marriage died, but I lived on. My daughter's 13 years old now and healthy. I have an eight-year-old son and he's healthy as an ox. I hope both of my kids grow up to be wonderful people. The types of people who bring so much joy to everyone around them that their absence would be a tragedy because that's the type of person that Henry was. He died 24 years ago and it's still fresh, but I'm no longer miserable. In fact, I'm well on my way to becoming the happiest person I know. And I think that fact would have made him happy. He also doesn't visit me in my dreams anymore. And I can finally admit that I'm comfortable with never seeing his face ever again in my dreams or otherwise. Because at the end of the day, what will an old man like me have to say to his 14 year old friend that hasn't been said already? Thank you. Okay. Okay. Now that is a difficult story to listen to for any person with a beating heart. I hope <clears throat> besides being just an empathetic you know, compassionate person, though, that story, I think, hits a, strikes a chord with me because I, I, that could have been me. That could have been me. I have a similar story. Now, there are some very key differences. But, truth be told, I think the differences key as they are, are lucky, are just by chance, by luck. I think my story is this. My story is almost, you know, I've never told anybody this. I mean, I, I have to be honest, I think about it sometimes, but whenever I think about this story, I think, I, I mean, I'm kind of embarrassed, even though nobody knows about it. But truly, when I was, I had to have been nine years old, nine or 10, but I think I was nine. I 
My parents never had guns. It just wouldn't have really crossed their minds. We just weren't a gun-toting family. We didn't have any reason to have a gun. I don't think a lot of people have reasons to have guns, but that's not the point. A gun would never have been in our house. However, I was the youngest of five kids, and my oldest brother, my oldest sibling, who was my brother, nine years older than me, he had a BB gun, a panned BB gun. And I have to tell you, it looked real. It looked totally real. It looked like, I mean, it was, it was a silver metal handgun. I mean, it looked real. It looked like any gun you'd see on the, in the video games, in the movies, and in the holsters with, uh, being worn by the police officers. It looked like a real handgun. I knew it was a BB gun because A, he had told me, B, I had seen him shoot it. And I knew that it didn't make a, you know, muzzle flash and it didn't have a bang and it didn't shoot bullets. I heard it make a pop. I saw it shoot a BB. But again, it looked real. And I had seen him use it, you know, out in the backyard, probably a year or so earlier. And I was just kind of, you know, rummaging around in the basement when I found it. And I, again, seeing it, I knew what it was immediately. I knew it was a BB gun and I knew it was my brother's. And I knew I didn't know how to use it. But I did know where the safety was because he had shown me. Kind of just coincidentally. Or maybe he didn't show me. Maybe I saw him show his friend. It doesn't matter. I knew where the safety was. But that's it. That's all I knew. I didn't know how to put BBs in it. I didn't know how. I didn't know anything else other than where the safety was and that it wasn't a real gun. But it looked like one. So I took it out, played with it for a little bit. I couldn't even, I mean, even when I took the safety off, I couldn't get the thing to click. I couldn't get it to do anything. I would pull on the trigger and it wouldn't move. So I knew that this gun was either broken or, um, I don't know, it just wasn't going to work for me. I didn't know how to use it. But I also knew that it looked very real and I liked to play jokes on my friends. So I put it away. I put it somewhere that was hidden, but not a typical hiding place. And a few days, few weeks, who knows. A while later, I was having a friend over, my best friend. His name was Alex. At the time, he was my best friend. We hung out all the time. He was a hilarious kid. Um, and we were best friends. And I remember purposefully kind of saying, oh, let's look for this thing. I think I got this new video game here. Let's look over here. Rummage, rummage, rummage. And I purposely, you know, moseyed our way over to where I knew that gun was and pretended to just stumble upon it. Actually, I think I even made it so that he stumbled upon it. And I watched his face and it was, <gasps> I mean, he was stunned. He was, I mean, again, this looked, I wish I could post a photo of this, um, it looked like a real handgun and he saw it and he couldn't believe it, you know, and he, he thought I was, you know, as stunned as he was, but I kind of thought, oh, wow. Oh gosh, let me see this thing. I kind of, had we just stumbled upon it together for the first time, had I not known it was there, I probably would have had the same reaction. I would have been, I would have been stunned. I would have been kind of scared. Um, that's how I would feel today if I were to stumble upon a gun, to be honest. Um, but I knew it was there. I knew it was the BB gun. And I knew that I didn't know how to work it. So 
I took it out. I kind of started messing with it. And I remember, and this is so, I feel so, I've never told anybody this, but I remember at one point, because he was very nervous about this, as he should have been. Thank God. But I remember at one point, you know, kind of telling me, oh, you know, like, relax. In my mind, knowing this is not a real gun, nothing's going to happen. But at one point, I do remember kind of holding it up and pointing it at him. And he got, it wasn't funny. I mean, I'll say that much. It wasn't funny. But he got really upset. And I think, I think, I don't know what happened. To be honest, I don't know what happened after that. I'm so ashamed that I did that. I mean, even as a nine-year-old, even knowing that this wasn't a real gun and it wasn't going to go off, frankly, when you hear the story we just heard, yes, that guy, kid, knew it was a real gun. First of all, again, I was nine. My friend and I were nine. In the story, apparently, this other kid was 13, 14. But the stories are very similar. We both knew knew what to expect with these guns. He was a positive that he had taken every bullet out. And frankly, I've heard of these guns he's talking about. There's a type of gun where you, while even though you take the bullets out one by one single-handedly, there is one that remains like in the muzzle or something. And that's the first one to shoot if you pull the trigger. And that must have been the hidden bullet that he had no idea existed. Now, again, the key differences are I knew mine was a BB gun. He knew his was a real gun. I knew. I didn't know it didn't have bullets in it. I I figured that much. I didn't know. I mean, uh, BBs in it. I just had messed with it and I couldn't pull the trigger. So I figured, okay, this is broken. It's not going to shoot. I didn't know that. I don't feel like I was any more assured that this BB gun wouldn't have gone off when I pointed it at my friend as this other guy was when he pointed his real gun at his friend. And it just scares the death. I mean, it scares the fucking bejesus out of me. Even if, a, even, again, key difference. that His was a real gun, mine was a BB gun. But even if this BB gun had somehow gone off and shot my friend in the face, that could have taken his eye out. It could have, it could have I mean, it would have really hurt him. And even that aside, the fact that I scared my friend. I mean, he didn't know it was a fake gun. I did. I mean, again, I was a nine-year-old playing a joke on a friend. And that's what this other guy was doing. And here's what I when I, here's what I mean when I say that the differences are lucky. What if that had been a real gun in my house? What if I had seen my brother have a real gun? I still would have known where the safety was. I still would have checked it out and been like, you know, okay, so it's got no bullets in it. What if it had been a real gun? I can't tell you that my nine-year-old self would have been able to distinguish, well, this is a BB gun, so I, I can play this joke versus, well, this is a this is a unloaded or unfunctional, not functioning handgun. I can play this joke. I don't know. I don't know that my nine-year-old self would have been able to make that separation. I truly don't. I hope so. But who's to say, you know, nine-year-old kids are nine-year-old kids. I, I just, it shakes me to my core. The idea that, you know, would I have played that same joke with 
what I thought was a not loaded handgun? Who will never know. But it didn't come to that because there wasn't a real gun in my house. I didn't have access to a real gun. That's another key difference. When there's guns in the house, it doesn't matter how locked up you think they are. It doesn't matter how safe you think you've made them. It doesn't matter. I have read news stories about accidental shootings taking place in the parking lot of a shooting range. I've heard them about kids or parents getting shot accidentally while going through a gun safety demonstration. Guns are dangerous. If there is a gun in the house, it is way, way, way more likely that someone's going to get shot in that house. You know, I will say this, and I can say it without a second's hesitation, and I mean it more than anything. If I think my house is getting broken into, I still don't want a gun. I'm sorry, I don't care. Because you know what? A lot of times when you hear something that you think is someone coming into the house, you didn't know someone was coming over or whatever. A lot of times, who is it? It's a, it's a relative, or it's a friend who thought you were out of town, or it's this person, or it's that person, or who knows? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's your son or daughter's boyfriend or girlfriend sneaking in. You don't know, okay? Get a baseball bat. Get some nunchucks. Call the police. Have a security, an alarm system installed in your house. Get a dog. You know, <laughs> yeah. You don't need guns for protection. How many times do you think there are home invasions in this country? Well, we don't know. It could be 10,000. I mean, it might be 100. I, I got to be prepared with my shotgun. Very few. How many people live in America? How many? What do you think the population of the United States is? Approximately 318.9 million. And that was in 2014. I'm sure it's gotten more populated since then. That's a lot of households. There are not that many home invasions per year. And when there are, there are even fewer that you hear were resolved because the owner of the house had a gun. I can tell you, I've read a lot of news stories about the owner of a house having a child find a gun and shoot their little sibling while they were playing guns. I, I teach right now. And um, a lot of times if I teach group classes, then we'll take breaks and we'll, I'll take the kids outside and whatever. I'm, it really kind of makes my skin crawl how these kids, a lot, I don't know if it's just this group in particular, but everything, every break they get, every game they play is bang, 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 pew, pew, pew. Oh, I have this gun. Like it is so, it is, and it's, look, I was really into the Power Rangers as a little kid. I loved them. Watched them every day after school, had a Power Rangers birthday. I listened to all the jabber, jibber jabber about, well, the Power Rangers are so violent. I just don't know how I feel about all this violence, you know, with the kicking and the punching. I'm not an over, I'm not, I don't, you know, overanalyze that stuff. But 
that was make-believe. I mean, that was obviously make-believe. The Power Rangers were, you know, a make-believe group of kids who had these, you know, superpowers and could put on these awesome colorful suits and kick some ass. With the guns, it's just guns. I mean, Halo and whatever else games they have, uh, Grand Theft Auto, it's just shooting. It's guns. I mean, I don't know. There's not a lot of imagination to it. And, you know, when you do hear about shootings at Sandy Hook and in Fort Hood and in, you know, Fort Lauderdale, the airport in Florida and in Aurora, Colorado movie theater, Sikh Temple shooting, uh, you know, everywhere, Virginia Tech, Columbine, every, we hear about them all the time. Well, you know, they, it's a little different, okay? You don't hear about a band of teenagers ganging up and going to kick some ass, fight crime in some California city. That'd be great if the Power Rangers were, some kids tried to really be the Power Rangers. All right, but anyway, I'm getting a little facetious, but the point is that story, that story and my story are just one little reason as to why it resonates with me and why I care so much. Because it's such, you know, guns. It's like, you know, our educational system. That's something that's going to take some real work to improve, to build upon, to kind of tweak here and there so that we can get it right. And then it's going to take years to kind of fix the damage we've done by, you know, falling behind. That's a long project, okay? The climate, you know, are what all we've done to destroy our, our earth and kind of, you know, put ourselves in a huge hole when it comes to preventing horrible, cataclysmic weather events. Well, that's something that we need to get on right away. But again, that's going to take a lot of time. We need to come up with ways to maneuver that and kind of combat climate change. With the gun thing, it's like, I have an idea. Let's just not have so many guns. You can't shoot a gun if you don't have a gun. You can't get shot if there are no guns around. And I know, I know that what I just said is about as galvanizing, effort, I mean, as anything in America, because people loves them guns more than they loves them kids. But frankly, I don't give a crap. I'm so over it. I mean, I'm just so over it. You're listening to The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was a gun story. That was my gun story and a gun story that I heard on NPR. I took it from a show called The Moth, which I heard on WNYC. You should check it out. We'll post a link on our Facebook page. But until then, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. It is currently 11.44 on Monday night, January 16th.
So, as uh, I announced last week, we are now available on iTunes as a podcast. Yes, that's right, a podcast. All you have to do is go to the iTunes store, search for the next best thing, and look for our logo under the podcast section. It'll say the next best thing by Radio Free Brooklyn. Our logo is black and white, uh, excuse me, black and red, and, you know, you can't miss it. So do that, subscribe. Listen to whatever episodes you want, um, as often and whenever you want. We would love it. Tell a friend. Do do whatever you'd like. Have a good time. You can also always follow us on Twitter, as we'd appreciate, at Next Best Radio. And, of course, by all means, check out our Facebook page and give us a like. Facebook.com slash NBT Radio. Lastly, you can email us at nextbestradio.com. Excuse me, nextbestradio at gmail.com. Okay, folks. So, to wrap things up tonight, we have about 10 minutes left. Uh, I have to say, one of the... I, I was I mentioned last week when we talked about different types of funny, that one guy, I mean, really two guys I miss so much, especially lately, are Stephen Colbert from The Colbert Report, and Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. Stephen Colbert, of course, is still around, but he doesn't do satire anymore, and it's a very different type of show. So, some of the guys I turn to nowadays for my fill of, you know, not necessarily satire, but, you know, just kind of straight-up, call-it-like-it-is humor, are people like Samantha Bee, John Oliver, Bill Maher, and Seth Meyers, believe it or not. You know, he does a great job on Late Night. Uh, You know, it was originally David Letterman, then it went to Conan O'Brien, then briefly Jimmy Fallon, and now Seth Meyers. I think he does a great job. One of the segments he uses often in his show, I honestly, again, I never watched the show live, so I don't know if this is something he does every night, but one of the favorite segments of his that I like to follow on his YouTube page is called A Closer Look. And recently he took a closer look at Donald Trump's, you know, excuse for a press conference. So I thought I'd give you a treat to that. Enjoy. Seth Meyers, taking a closer look. Hello. Un momento. I'm sorry, folks. We're having a little technical difficulties here. Technical difficulties. I'm also having some technical difficulties speaking like a human being. All right, so Seth Myers, yeah, great guy. 
also Full Frontal with Samantha B on TBS. Believe it or not, that is a network, and it's the one that Conan O'Brien, remember him? That's what network his show is on. <laughs> so check them out, and of course, Bill Maher and John Oliver are both on. Um, they are both on HBO. It's not TV, it's HBO. We'll take this out in editing, don't worry. Okay, here, <laughs> here is... Seth Meyers taking a closer look at Donald Trump's sorry excuse for a press conference recently. And I hope to God it doesn't start with an ad, but it might. So get ready. Okay, well, I don't know what the problem is here, folks. We might have a little bit of a technical problem here at Radio Free Brooklyn. <laughs> Believe it or not, what else is new? Well, all right, one second. No. It's sprawling. There it is. There it is. is there it is. All right, here we go. This week has been a wake-up call for anyone who still held out hope that Donald Trump might change as president. From his war on the free press to his sprawling and unprecedented conflicts of interest, Trump has proven that his presidency will be a major test for our democracy. For more on this, it's time for a closer look. <laughs> Trump, of course, held his first press conference as president-elect yesterday, and it was clear Trump was interested in one thing above all else, picking a fight with the media. As far as BuzzFeed, which is a failing pile of garbage, writing it, I think they're going to suffer the consequences. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Go since ahead. you're no, Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Mr. President-elect, since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you. Not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization. You are attacking our news organization. Your organization. Can you give us a chance to ask a question, sir? Go ahead, sir. Can Quiet. you state, can, Quiet. Mr. President-elect? Go ahead. Can you state categorically, question. Mr. President-elect? Can you give us a question? Don't be you're rude. Attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Can you no, give I'm us a question? I'm not going to give you a question. Can you state categorically? You are fake news. I will say, I do hope you are fake news makes it into lexicon as a sassy comeback. <laughs> You're the worst member of this sorority, Kaylee. Well, you, Claire, are fake news. <laughs> it's gonna be... It's gonna be the new Bye Felicia. Bye, fake news! <laughs> but, in fact, the CNN report was not fake news. Both the director of national intelligence and Vice President Joe Biden have recently made comments that seem to confirm what CNN reported, Trump's hostility toward the press is the kind of thing you usually see in authoritarian regimes. In fact, in an especially creepy move, Trump stocked the press conference with employees who laughed at his jokes and shouted out supportive answers to his rhetorical questions. And in case you're wondering what kind of jokes the paid staff were there to laugh at, here's an example. Does anyone really believe that story? I'm also very much of a germaphobe, by the way. <laughs> believe me. That's the president-elect joking about how he couldn't have been in a room where Russian prostitutes were urinating on each other because he's a germaphobe just for a where we're at as a nation. <laughs> he wanted to check in on that. Also, and I know it's a waste of time to keep pointing this stuff out, but in a 2015 Hollywood Reporter article, Trump said, I'm not germaphobic. But whatever, up is down, black is white, we should just admit we're all living in the upside down with Barb. <laughs> Stay strong, Barb, we're coming to get you. Or not. 
But the heavy-handed tactics weren't the only creepy things about Trump's press conference. There was also his usual penchant for empty spectacle. After all, this press conference was called in the first place to detail how Trump would deal with his massive business empire as president. To prove he was taking the issue seriously, he brought with him a prop table full of piles of folders and documents that he claimed were the real documents he actually signed. But when reporters asked to see the documents, they were told they couldn't. And not only that, from close-up photos, it looked like the papers inside were all blank. <laughs> Even if you were doing a middle school play, you'd write something on the folders to make it look real. <laughs> Which brings us to the next serious test Trump poses for our democracy, his conflicts of interest. Our system of government depends in part on our adherence to the rule of law as a way of preventing and rooting out even the possibility of corruption. But yesterday, Trump basically announced a sham arrangement in which he would not divest from his companies or put his holdings in a blind trust, and instead would just hand the empire over to his sons, Kim Jong Eric and Kim Jong Donald. <laughs> the reason why this is so troubling is because having a president with such a massive and opaque business empire is an open invitation to unconstitutional bribes or other types of financial coercion. How do we know that's a possibility? Because Trump himself literally admitted he was offered a massive amount of money from a foreign businessman a couple of days ago. Over the weekend, I was offered $2 billion to do a deal in Dubai with a very, very, very amazing man, a great, great developer from the Middle East. Hussein Demak, a friend of mine, great guy. And I turned it down. He offered you $2 billion, and that's how you say his name? Hussein. Tabak. <laughs> he said it like he was guessing it in a game of Pictionary. Hussein. Tabak. Tree. A beaver. But when it comes to these potentially massive conflicts of interest, it's not just Trump we have to worry about. There's also his cabinet of millionaires and billionaires, like his choice for Secretary of State. The former CEO of ExxonMobil, Rex Tillerson. Tillerson ran a company that has massive oil interests spread out throughout the world, particularly in Russia. In fact, in 2011, Exxon struck a deal with the Russian government to drill in the Russian Arctic, a deal Tillerson and Vladimir Putin personally celebrated with a champagne toast. Look at them. Either they just struck a deal to drill for oil, or they just hired the Joker to kill Batman. <laughs> to the future of Gotham. It was probably both. Who are we kidding? That's the future Secretary of State if Trump has his way. Hey, let's band together and not let that happen, okay? I hope everyone has a great week. That's our show for this week. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, like I said, check us out on iTunes as a podcast. Um, all of our archived shows are there as well, so listen at your leisure. And follow us on Twitter. Enjoy our Facebook page. And again... This has been The Next Best Thing on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm John, John B. Lerner, who will see you next Monday, same time, same place. And until then, I guess I'll see you as a podcast. Be well, everybody. Peace and love. J'ai vu New York, New York USA. J'ai vu New York, New York USA. J'ai jamais rien vu d'autre 
J'ai jamais rien vu d'aussi haut, c'est au New York, New York USA. J'ai vu New York, New York USA. J'ai vu New York, New York USA. J'ai jamais rien vu d'aussi j'ai jamais rien vu d'aussi haut, c'est au New York, New York USA. Fasted building. Rockefeller Center International Building Waldorf Astoria Pan American Building Bank of Manhattan